Welcome to the Frankly Judaic Podcast, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. I'm Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the center. This podcast explores some of the newest research being conducted at the University of Michigan in Judaic Studies. And here's your host, Jeremy Shear. Mark Kaplan is a scholar of Yiddish literature. The project that I'm working on is titled Melancholic Conspiracies, Yiddish Modernism and German Modernity in the Weimar Era. And it is a comparison of Yiddish literature that was written in Berlin during the 1920s with what is happening in German culture and specifically in German Jewish culture at the same time. That's Mark. And I am a uh, fellow at the Frankel Institute uh, for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. Kaplan focuses mainly on three Yiddish writers of the interwar period in Berlin, Moshe Kolbach, Der Nister, and David Bergelson. David Bergelson was born in 1884. He was killed by Stalin in 1952. Uh, he was really perhaps the leading Yiddish novelist uh, with very little competition uh, in terms of the artistic or the high literary fiction of the early 20th century. Uh, to quote a phrase, he would be the, uh, the Thomas Mann or uh, maybe the uh, James Joyce or the uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald of Yiddish literature in that era. Bergelson started out as uh, a writer of what I would describe as shtetl decadence. Uh, he starts with the same premise that 19th century Yiddish writers, people who are maybe a little bit more familiar to uh, English language readers like uh, Sholem Aleichem or perhaps I.L. Peretz, uh, like they, he writes about traditional small-town Jewish life in the Pale of Settlement, in Tsarist Russia. And by the time he begins writing, the mood of this milieu is despondency, impotence in both a political sense and a sexual sense, um, despair, immobility. Uh, and he's the great uh, chronicler of the infeasibility, the untenability of life in the shtetl. Bergelson's stories, Kaplan says, are a sort of early prototype of the comedy of Jerry Seinfeld. His are the novels about nothing. Uh, the most famous of them in English translation is called The End of Everything. And that's a really great English translation for what he's writing about, uh, these uh, anguished, ineffectual, uh, hopeless characters. This is Bergelson's writing up to about World War I. After World War I, in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, the border wars between the Soviet Union and Poland, and civil wars in Ukraine, Bergelson's circumstances and writing changed. After World War I, material circumstances changed for Dove Bergelson. It's not possible to live in the Pale of Settlement anymore. It's not a safe place for Jewish writers. There's no work. There's a tremendous uncertainty as to whether the Russian Revolution will be successful and what direction it will turn in terms of its treatment of Jews, in terms of its treatment of literature. Uh, so Bergelson in 1921 settles in Berlin. Bergelson's work becomes about something 
when he arrives in, the, in, in Berlin in the 1920s. Uh, there are two reasons for this. One is the historical fact that th this image of the shtetl as this passive, static, uh, eventless space is no longer true. The shtetl becomes a very dynamic, very tumultuous place. And the other reason is now living in Berlin, Bergelson really has to support himself, and he begins writing for the daily press, specifically in the United States. The way that he supports himself is writing short stories for first the Forwärts, which is the most famous of the uh, Yiddish newspapers in the United States, and in the middle of his Berlin sojourn, he switches over to the Freiheit, which is the communist paper, the paper that's tied to the Soviet Union. For the Freiheit, Bergelson wrote the major work of his Berlin period, a novel titled Midas Hadin, which translates to strict justice or stern judgment. Uh, it refers to God. God has a Midas Hadin, uh, an aspect of judgment, and a midas harachamim, an aspect of mercy. And for example, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, we appeal to God's sense of mercy against his sense of justice, against his, his sense of judgment, uh, that we be forgiven. And the way that Bergelson uses the term is, it's the Soviet Union that has this sense of judgment, but that just as God needs to be able to judge the world fairly, the Soviet Union needs to judge its citizens fairly. So that's what the title refers to. It's it's an ironic title, but it's unclear toward whom the irony is directed. Among the thousands of pages and many stories that Bergelson wrote while living in Berlin, only a relative handful were set in the city. The most interesting of the stories that are set in Berlin is called Zwischen Emigranten, and that can be translated as either uh, between immigrants or among refugees. Among refugees is probably the better uh, title, both for the content of the story and for the fact that the Jews who arrive from Eastern Europe to Berlin don't really see themselves as immigrants, as people who are interested in settling in Germany. They see themselves as refugees, and they see themselves moving on either back to the Soviet Union or on to Palestine or on to the United States or maybe even on to Paris, somewhere other than Berlin. So the story among, uh, among refugees, Svishen Emigranten, is about a Jewish terrorist who believes that he's living next door to a perpetrator of a pogrom, someone who had uh, killed members of this uh, terrorist's family, someone who had raped young women whom this uh, uh, terrorist had known in the shtetl, and he's trying to get revenge. And the story is slightly comic, very, very pathetic, his efforts to secure a gun, his efforts to secure the support of the Jewish community, and his efforts to appeal to this writer who doesn't know who this kid is, doesn't know why he sought him out, but feels compelled somehow, uh, if not to help him, at least to uh, identify with his aspirations. And by the end of the story, it's not even completely clear to me as a reader that the terrorist has the right guy. That the, the that the Ukrainian living across the hall from him in the border uh, in the in the boarding house is, is is even the perpetrator of all these atrocities that the um that the young Jewish man attributes to him. 
Bergelson's story reflects a peculiar reality of 1920s Berlin, where Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe often live side by side with Russian and Ukrainian perpetrators and suspected perpetrators of atrocities against Jews. Berlin was also host to reactionary violence stemming from revolutions and wars that had taken place just a few years before. That's certainly part of the motivation and part of the backdrop for the story. And it's interesting to see the way that Bergelson adopts a take on this, adopts this fact, this historical circumstance, to his own writing style, which is nothing is possible. There is no uh, action. Uh, There's only contemplation, and that contemplation usually takes you to a very ineffectual place. So it's it's a little bit like Woody Allen uh, writing writing about uh, the student protests of the 1960s, maybe. A common thread running through his research, Kaplan says, is that Bergelson and other Jewish writers in Berlin, as well as non-Jewish writers, were traumatized by World War I. What has just happened to you has been so overwhelming, so, so unprecedented, so disruptive, that the decade that follows the war and the revolutions uh, remain in the shadow of those events. Uh, that inability to escape, that sense of uh, melancholy, of grievance, of uh, really trauma, uh, affects all of these writers equally. This is, of course, the decade of the lost generation. The Yiddish writers and the German writers don't use that term, lost generation, but they are uh, replicating some of the same traumas. Another of the writers Kaplan studies, Der Nister, was the pen name, meaning the hidden one, of Pinchas Kachanovich. He was also born in 1884. He died under Stalinist internment in 1950. And he was a radically experimental uh, Yiddish storyteller, fiction writer. Um, We might compare him very, very loosely, very, very broadly to a figure like James Joyce or maybe William Faulkner. He took the oral traditions of Hasidic storytelling and he merged them with this very fantastic really surreal imagination. And his writing in the 1920s was at the apex of its inscrutability, its uh, obscurity, uh, and its elaborate kind of Baroque uh, uh, fantasy. He returns to the Soviet Union, and he actually becomes a very interesting and very significant socialist realist novelist uh, until Stalin decides that he's had enough of uh, uh, Yiddish loyalty to the state, and he's uh, imprisoned and he dies there. Dernister began as a disciple of I.L. Peretz, one of the leading Yiddish writers of the late 19th century, and borrowed from Peretz an impressionistic, lyrical style that remains rooted to a folkloric Hasidic imagination. When Dernister relocated from Russia to Berlin, though, his writing changed. But in this era of the uh, heyday, really, of the Weimar Republic, what happens to this obscure, heavily symbolic imagination is the outside world comes rushing in. So you have these extremely strange and intriguing stories about, instead of hermits who are on a quest in uh, 
uh, in the wilderness. You have drunks on a quest in the um, in the taverns. Very explicitly, uh, urban settings. Lots of slum naturalism. Lots of squalor. But the quest for some kind of purity, some kind of vision, remains consistent between these earlier stories and these later uh, urbanized stories. Dernister's culminating story of this period, titled Behind a Fence, refers to a place in a Jewish cemetery where disgraced Jewish bodies are buried. People who converted to another religion, uh, people who were criminals, uh, people who commit suicide. They're buried behind the fence. They're in the sanctified ground, but they're separated from everybody else. So there are no deaths in uh, Denister's version of the story. There's only a disgraced academic, something that I can relate to, uh, who wakes up after a night of drinking. He's been humiliated by this woman whom he's fallen in love with in the circus. Uh, and he recounts how he came to leave his academy in order to join the circus and how this woman whom he fell in love with just humiliates him in different ways and how he betrays his family and he betrays his ideals. And by the end of the story, you're not really sure what this uh, protagonist has dreamt uh, and what he's actually experienced. The only thing that you're certain of is his disgrace and his humiliation. This story, as it turns out, is inspired very directly by a novel that Heinrich Mann, Thomas Mann's brother, wrote uh, called Professor Umrath, uh, The Professor of Garbage. This becomes the prototype of another product of Weimar Germany culture, uh, the film The Blue Angel, which starred and launched the career of Marlene Dietrich. So there's this tremendous coincidence that Danister is writing in Yiddish a story that's inspired by Heinrich Mann's novel at the very same time that an American director, uh, Joseph Sternberg, better known as Josef von Sternberg, uh, uh, is making this film with Marlene Dietrich. That, to me, captures the magic of this moment that with no contact with one another, uh, this very cosmopolitan, internationalized German culture and the seemingly obscure hermetic Yiddish culture are really deriving their, their, their inspiration from the exact same things. The last of the writers Kaplan focuses on, Moshe Kolbach, was a young radical poet from Vilna. Moshe Kolbach uh, arrives in Berlin as a very accomplished young poet, uh, and he wants to transform himself while in Berlin into a prose writer, uh, which remarkably is easier said than done. Uh, I think that maybe his motivations for wanting to write in prose are partly a response to his engagement with German thought. I think maybe the other reason is uh, under the influence of what's happening in German literature and German popular culture at the time. But his first effort toward writing prose while he's in Berlin uh, 
is called uh, Mashiach ben Ephraim. And this is another term that, uh, like Midas Hadin, is going to be instantly recognizable to a Yiddish reader, but is actually rather difficult to translate or to convey outside of uh, the parameters of Jewish culture. Basically, Mashiach ben Ephraim refers to a concept uh, in rabbinical Judaism, in Kabbalistic thought, uh, about the eventual messianic uh, uh, era, that before we arrive at the Davidic Messiah, the Mashiach ben David, uh, there's going to be a period of tribulation uh, in which the Jewish people are going to be led by a Messiah from the house of Joseph, uh, Mashiach ben Ephraim. Uh, There will be wars, there will be great suffering, and eventually this prototypical Messiah, this Messiah from the house of Joseph, must sacrifice himself so that the Jewish people can survive and the Davidic Messiah can establish his reign of peace and harmony and happiness. Kolbach adapts this concept in his novel by describing a period sometime before World War I set in an imaginary shtetl where a hermit lives. A group of intellectuals, Christian mystics, and disenchanted Hasidim decide that this reclusive hermit is going to be their messiah. And they all proclaim his kingdom and uh, proclaim their loyalty to him. Among these people is a beautiful young Jewish woman who decides that she's going to be his uh, uh, devotee. He's perfectly happy to cohabit with her, Uh, but he's not so interested in becoming the Messiah. So there's a real parodic kind of comic uh, absurdity about this man rejecting the efforts of these people to uh, deify him. Uh, It's a little bit like the life of Brian uh, set in a Yiddish shtetl. Um, Eventually, he convinces these people that he's not the Messiah, they shouldn't wait for the Messiah, there's nothing worth waiting for uh, 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 in this uh, uh, body of beliefs. So in response, uh, they kill him in a particularly uh, absurd and grotesque kind of uh, parodic, maybe satanic ritual. Uh, Spoiler alert, by the way. The The apocalyptic era that uh, Kulbach sets his uh, uh, really unique narrative in is the era right before World War I. Uh, and of course, what has followed that era is not a messianic time. It's not a utopian time. It's a time of even greater tribulation and uncertainty and violence. Um, this is the kind of gesture uh, that, on the one hand, is unique to Yiddish satire, uh, on the other, is not so different from the way that uh, the radical element of German aesthetics would have seen their own predicament going from the end of World War I into the Weimar era. For Kaplan, one remarkable aspect of these Yiddish writers living in Berlin and writing often for an American audience about life in Eastern Europe is that German Jews and other Germans on the left see themselves as alienated from mainstream German culture. Jewish writers especially were fascinated by what was happening in Eastern Europe. And this fascination plays out in two ways, uh, which are ultimately interrelated in the German-Jewish imagination and also connected to Yiddish. 
One is a real identification with the Soviet Union. Everybody in the world is interested in the Soviet Union, and everybody, at least uh, in the early 20s, is rooting for the Soviet Union. That here, uh, everybody, at least on the left in the early 20s, is rooting for the Soviet Union. That here is a place where socialism just might be able to work. So German Jews are certainly not immune to this idea. Um, many of them visit the Soviet Union. Many of them are supportive of the idea, even of some of the um, brutal aspects of the Soviet Union are considered to be necessary for the establishment of a socialist state. So that automatically attracts the interest of some German Jewish intellectuals. At the same time, there's a real interest in what's happening in the new nations uh, that are carved out of the old Russian empire, particularly Poland. Poland, Kaplan says, was seen as the last bastion of a traditional Jewish culture and as a cautionary lesson that, in contrast to the so-called workers' paradise being created in the Soviet Union, Poland was an old-fashioned, corrupt nation-state. German Jewish writers are attracted to Poland, but also repelled by it in the same way that Jews who are living in Poland uh, hope for the ability to lead an autonomous and a, a productive life, but are fearful of Polish anti-Semitism, Polish uh, authoritarianism, uh, the failures or the uh, shortcomings of the Polish nation state. So these German Jews are uh, some of them are journalists, some of them are novelists, uh, some of them are theoretical or philosophical writers, but they're all training their eyes on what's happening in the East. And I think that this is one uh, opportunity or one venue of correspondence between the Yiddish and the German writers. The way that this plays out primarily is through travel literature. So there's a lot of German-Jewish travel literature either uh, depicting this search for roots in the authentic Jewish culture of Poland, which none of these writers ever find, or this search for a new future uh, cryptically Jewish but ostensibly internationalist that could maybe be found in the Soviet Union. Such considerations are especially relevant today, Kaplan says, during our era of refugees and dislocated metropolises that have both idealistic and traumatic associations. Berlin in the 1920s combines both of those aspects. The aspiration of immigrants, of refugees looking for a, a free and independent life, the anxieties of both these newcomers and the people who are ostensibly already settled there about w what this cultural contact will signify. Um, and the way in which we respond to these dislocations, I think, is also remarkably similar. One of the concepts that I talk about, and this is a conceptual term, but it's an important one to the comparison that I'm trying to make, is the idea of allegory. The idea that the juxtaposition of these unexpected um, predicaments traditional Jews adopting communism, um, Yiddish writers living in Germany. Uh, the imaginative consequence of that is 
a mode of seeing the world between languages, between historical periods, between states of consciousness. The way in which artists represent that intermediate phenomenon is allegory. And I think that today, in 2016, uh, speaking of the foreseeable future of artistic representation, we live in an era that is, again, particularly and explicitly allegorical. So I think that a patient reader who can read Moshe Kulbach in translation, and there are translations of his work from Berlin, uh, the reader who will look forward to seeing a translation of Midas Hadin will not only see great historical fiction or great examples of the Yiddish literary imagination, they might also see something that they can identify our own predicament in. Thanks for listening to the Frankly Judaic podcast, a production of the Frankel Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan.